This is All Things Considered, and I'm Noah Colwyn. 20 years ago this week, the rock band Radiohead released what many consider their magnum opus Kid A. Ex-girlfriends whined to our correspondent about why it sucked. On Capitol Hill, leading physicians testified that the coronavirus pandemic is far from over. Leaders at the CDC stressed that the American people must not be, quote, bitch-made, and that it's our duty to try and tough it out. And finally, some good news from a research clinic in California. Scientists are saying that they've made a world historical breakthrough. That's right, they've found a cure for racism. This is Noah Colwin, and you're listening to All Things Considered on NPR. Brace, that's the first intro we haven't done together. I know. It feels a little, I just feel a little funky. I, uh, <laughs> I think to rectify this crazy feeling that I have, I think oh we should God. do like a 35-minute UCB-style like <laughs> uh, improv routine um, about bananas. Mm. Yes, Actually, and? I don't know, man. I was going to do like a UCB joke. And I couldn't remember what the phrase they say. That's what I they have, say. Yes, and. I have, do you have an, in, I have zero interest in improv. Yeah, I'm good. I like, I, I lived with two improv people. No, I'll tell did you, what, you Yes, they got really mad at me for stealing all their silver spoons and using them to shoot junk with. Uh, but they were well, awful. They were always in the enough. living room. <laughs> um, well, I don't like that. Listen, if you live with other people, you got to ration your living. You can't be a guy that's just always in the living room. I think that's very true. You know? Because then it kind of becomes your space. No, like, no, man. I want to, like, get caught jerking off there, too. Oh, my God. Anyway, <laughs> hello. Welcome. This is True Anon. Hi. My name is Brace. <laughs> I'm Liz. We are joined by Young Chomsky, who's our producer. I did that weird. <laughs> Keep going, Liz. <laughs> um, so uh, we have a, a kind of wild episode. I don't know what to say. We had a plan for this episode. Mm. We had a plan. We had our notes. We were ready to go. And it kind of went off the rails. Yeah. Uh, a phrase I came up with in 2012 to describe a, 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 an unfortunate encounter I had with several men on the street is mm. no plan survives contact with the enemy. <laughs> Not that no is the enemy, but Palantir, in fact, podcasting is my enemy. And so our plan went off the rails, but I liked it. Yeah, it was fun. So we've got a wide, wide-ranging conversation for you guys with our old friend Noah Colwyn, mm-hmm. who, yeah, this is uh, third time's the charm on mm-hmm. his appearance on Truanon, and we're talking freaky-deaky shit, you guys. Let's do it. Well, we got fucking Noah here again. <laughs> That's good. I That's... didn't ask to be here, man. <laughs> hey, I not my pride. Listen, baby. Every 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 few days, I show up to the Google Meet, and somebody else is here. Maybe it's just Liz. I don't know. I just go with it. I don't, you don't think I read the notes for this kind of shit? I don't know. Uh, well, we got Noah. What the fuck are we talking about today? 
<laughs> no, uh, we should say uh, welcome. Brace gave the game away. We have Noah Colwyn here today. Uh, Noah, how should we introduce you? Uh, <laughs> Why don't you introduce yourself? We usually do this before we record. Wait, let me try this. Let me try this. Noah is uh, some position. I can't remember if it's editor or not at Jewish Currents, or he's not anymore. Okay, he's nodding. And he's also the co-host of the very famous and rival podcast, Blowback Podcast, about uh, about the Iraq War, the second war. Yes, Iraq War, the two. That's about <laughs> yes. right. I mean, the particulars really don't matter. It's, yeah. They're sort no, of irrelevant. Our most what matters is that guest. I'm here. Exactly. Yeah, Not this only is third here. time, right? Yeah, this is I'm like fourth three-peat. or fifth time. I'm I'm here for the three peat four and five uh, inshallah to quote Joe Biden yeah. uh, will happen and yeah. to quote LeBron six seven eight <laughs> you know we don't know what, what's gonna happen. Uh, we have brought Noah here to the uh, to uh, hedonism two to talk about one of my biggest, greatest, worst, and uh, twink lovingest enemies. <laughs> Peter Thiel and Palantir. <laughs> yes. Um, if people don't know, uh, Palantir is recently in the news uh, because they recently went public. They filed an IPO. Uh, they they opened, I think it was on Wednesday of this week. They uh, opened at the stock exchange. I think they opened at like $10 a share. Um, and so... Uh, Palantir is famous for being this basically kind of like shadowy Silicon Valley uh, tech company. Um, one of the, the I, I feel like they kind of operate based on like people not knowing what they're doing. It's sort of like in casual conversation, it's like everyone agrees that Palantir is very scary, mm-hmm. but no one really knows what they do. Um, kind of like a smaller scale, like BlackRock in terms of mm-hmm. like... Um, they're like the this the space they mentally occupy. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I think of it as like Palantir is a surveillance company and a yeah. really good surveillance company by definition is one that doesn't share a lot of details about how it conducts surveillance, for whom it conducts surveillance and on whom it does. And so I think that those sorts of like, you know, th- the nature of its business is pretty fundamentally opaque. And even when that kind of company goes public, you know, which refers to the act of making public its financial information, we still don't get a really complete idea of what Palantir does and for whom. Yeah. So we are really happy to have you on because you actually are very well versed in a lot of the ins and outs of Silicon Valley and the tech industry. Um, And so I think today we're going to kind of go into some of these things about what we know about Palantir, what we don't know about Palantir. A little bit of history there. And then kind of like, who is Peter Thiel, right? Because this is another person who um, operates in a lot of spheres, whether political or in technology or in science or even in academia, as we'll see, and is a bit of a shadowy figure himself. A lot of people know who he is, but don't really know what he's about. And um, I think we all got a lot of to say about this guy. <laughs> well, I think with I think with Palantir and Teal, I think the impression that most people have of of that guy and that organization is A Palantir spies on you and works with ICE and B Peter Teal drinks the blood of young people and uh shut down Gawker. 
And that's like basically the two main things that people know. And so, yeah, I, I think it's pretty important we get into what a- this company actually fucking does. Right. I mean, to give, you know, a bit of sort of like the brief, like by the facts sort of description of Palantir. Palantir was founded in 2003 um, and 2004. It sort of really gets going. And it was created by Peter Thiel, who by that point had made his millions into billions by co-creating PayPal. And through his investment fund, the Founders Fund, and working with other former colleagues from what are called like the PayPal Mafia, Elon Musk is a member of this. That's actually like the the nickname that they the moniker that they chose to go by. That is so um, fucking corny. Uh, so I think lame. it's really cool, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so like they the PayPal Mafia launches uh, Palantir in the mid two thousands, and you can already sort of conjure the environment mentally of what two thousand three two thousand four was like. We were preparing to invade Iraq. The surveillance state, as we understand it today, was being you know built brick by brick um, in even more aggressive form with the passage of the Patriot Act just a few years earlier. And I think Palantir can sort of rightfully be viewed as kind of a specifically Silicon Valley. Um, based kind of intervention into that sort of uh, like emerging space. Mm-hmm. And the and central idea of it is, you know, you can kind of suss it out from its name. The Palantir in The Lord of the Rings is the all-seeing orb eye thing that in the movies gets one of the hobbits into trouble. I don't remember the the plot details that specifically but what i do remember is that tolkien um specifically introduced the palantir as an example of like a piece of technology or or, or magic or whatever that corrupt all who used it so naturally uh peter Thiel um unironically and uh, and literally lifts it uh so like ryan yeah uh, sure yeah i've literally never read or seen lord of the rings uh, I mean, it's entertaining. The movies suck, but... The, the I tried to fun. watch the movie, and I couldn't get over that Elijah Wood's neck is the same width as his face. Mm. So and it's I don't understand like, why the little men are so small, but there's other guys that are, like, normal height. Uh, crossbreeding. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, we won't get into that here. Yeah, it's the... <laughs> Um, so like the Palantir, like sort of it in, it's in the late 2000s and the early 2010s when it starts to raise really, really substantial amounts of money from private mm-hmm. investors, including InQtel, which is mm. the CIA's private venture capital firm, uh, that it starts to draw a lot of attention because it's also around this time with the proliferation of technologies like cloud computing and smartphones that the actual applications of Palantir, you know, like the kind of fantasy that it conjures can be realized. And what that fantasy is, is basically creating a piece of software or a tool that can synthesize a lot of different strands of data that can take a lot of different complicated inputs and make them more easily accessible to Palantir's clients. One thing that I found uh, notable about the InQtel thing is, first of all, I, I knew that that the CIA had like a venture capital firm before, but I didn't know that at the time that they acquired or that they invested in Palantir, rather, uh, it was basically being run by the guy that brought Tetris over to America. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the creation of InQtel is a funny story on its own, and there's actually been a lot of like writing done about it. Um, but I think it's also like it's it's sort of as like shorthand. It's really really useful to look at InQtel and the kind of stuff that it invests in as sort of like you know reflective of the ambient interest of the security state and mm-hmm. the kinds of technologies it wants to invest in, as well as the actual individual people that it wants to support. Which I guess is a good way of talking about the very weird fucking guy who's the actual CEO of Palantir, Alex Karp, who ultimately answers to Peter Thiel. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 Al- exactly. yeah, Alex Karp is a real character. It's weird because he um, he got a lot of like very weird press for basically uh, calling himself a socialist and being this mm-hmm. sort of like trying to position himself as a kind of foil to Peter Thiel, like who is no- obviously notoriously very conservative, libertarian. Um, and it doesn't that all doesn't seem to be the case, <laughs> like at all with Alex well, Karp. Well. Carp got his start writing for Jacobin, if I'm not not mistaken, <laughs> no. and did like some book on the Civil War or whatever. Yeah, yeah, he just got <laughs> tenured at Princeton, I think. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I was surprised yeah. to see him. No, Alex Carp is. I think. I think a good way of looking at this is that like he doesn't come from like a technological background. He comes from like a philosophy background mm-hmm. in in, in school wise, at least, which I think leads. No disrespect. Listen. I am literally closing my eyes, drawing my hands together in prayer right now. Well, in like the prayer shape, I'm actually praying and saying, any philosophy graduates out there, whatever you are, I see you, I hear you, you're valid. I will think it's weird when you do head up a surveillance company. I don't like that. <laughs> um, you should just do what you're supposed to do and just get a job at like a fancy coffee shop. Um, but yeah, he is. He he did that whole like series of interviews about being. Uh, like socialist and like didn't really elaborate on what that means. But like, to be honest, his politics aren't like too different from Tony Blair's I'm sure. Um, and, or most parties in like the socialist international. And he, uh, he, one thing I, I did discover, he is a very unlikable man, even from afar, like watching videos of this man speak, you, you get this like sort of like reserve of rage that you didn't know was mm-hmm. in you. And it comes to the fore and like you start doing the whole Elvis gun TV thing, and like it, 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 it's 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 incredible. And apparently, he doesn't just rub me the wrong way; he rubs like actual other policemen the wrong way too. Right. I mean, Palantir has had a notoriously difficult time throughout its lifetime for uh, in maintaining contracts with its clients. Um, it's been like you know, sort of a number of years ago, starting with Will Alden, then at BuzzFeed News, uh, wrote a bunch of stories about how Palantir struggled to keep corporate clients. And and some of it, and, and especially in the law enforcement world, a lot of it's chopped up, chalked up to the fact that Alex Karp is this, like, total weirdo. I mean, he he claims to have, like, studied uh, theory with, like, Jürgen Habermas, which, um, which Lara Weigel... Which, that's apparently not true, yeah, by she the way. Yeah, debu- like, she debunked that. And, who's that? Uh, who's, who's Jürgen Habermas? Uh, I porn star. I don't know. I know he's a he's a. I think a polit- He's a European continental political theorist. Okay, um, lame. Yeah, and but the I think that like he's always tried to cut this sort of like. I mean, there, there's a certain kind of um, like figure that he sort of like an archetype that he resembles in Silicon yes. Valley, which is like the philosopher king CEO. Mm-hmm. I think the most like, like easily compared example would be when you look at Mark Zuckerberg um, during the years of like, you know, Facebook's like biggest growth, uh, unchallenged growth before it really entered public scrutiny. There was this whole sort of idea that he tried to advance about how Facebook was connecting the world. And that yes. was why Facebook was offering free basics in India and why it would beam internet from yeah. balloons and like. Right. That obviously the trade-off with that is that you give them data and information, but that Facebook would be, you know, almost like this utility. And there was like a real, you know, like there was like an intellectual and ideological component to it. And obviously that was sort of subordinate always to whatever is the thing that makes Facebook most money. Um, But I think that like that image and that idea is something that is, you know, like in in the toolkit of Silicon Valley companies, it's something that's very, very useful for both raising money, for articulating a vision of how these companies 
companies can perform on the open market once they do go public and for generally trying to give you know a sort of like straightforward coherence to these companies like you know imagined conceptions of themselves because it's also a way for palantir to humanize its vision to launder it through this weirdo ceo yeah to be able to you know say that like we're not in the bit because this palantir does this they literally say this that we're not in the business of like soaking up your data like facebook and those other bad companies mm-hmm. um instead we're, we're, we're working with ice and it's a way to try and hide those contradictions that's like that's something that's so common in in well it's i guess just in all over the business world but it becomes like really comical when you when you look at it with silicon valley is that all these companies present this like sort of grand all-encompassing sometimes like totalizing vision of like their mission and and the things they're going to do and like yeah like you're saying like facebook was become this world-changing force for good or like google i mean a lot of it revolves of course around connectivity but like what it really is, is just like different ways of saying like, we are taking your data, we are ruining your life and we're like smiling as we do it and we're making a ton of money or we're not making any money at all because it's all about the mission. Yeah, I want to for a second uh, read something that Carp, I keep wanting to say Matt Carp. I feel so bad. I'm sorry, Matt, if you're listening Matt, to this. Yeah, Matt, we apologize for this, but uh, it's it's your last name. So it's kind of your fault <laughs> and your problem. Just fucking own it. Okay. Pick a different fish. <laughs> so, there are like five other Jewish last names you could pick from that would be fine. Like, let's be real. Okay, okay, okay. So, um, Alex Carp wrote a letter to investors because Palantir announced that it was moving out of Silicon Valley, and this was a big, uh, you know, this was made. Uh, this was a big earthquake in Silicon Valley because, like mm-hmm. you, I mean, Noah's kind of laid out is that Palantir was a very early. I mean, I don't want to say early adopter, but they were like an early teal and Palantir were like an early pillar of the like Silicon Valley uh, landscape and ethos and and kind of, um, you know, really exemplifying this that kind of mystery and ambition, like you say, right? So uh, them making a big point about they're they're moving all of their offices to Denver, Colorado, which I want to put a little I, I want to put a pin in that because I want to come back to Colorado a little bit after this. But I want to read from the letter that he wrote because it kind of uh, gets at what we're talking about. He says, The engineering elite of Silicon Valley may know more than most about building software, but they do not know more about how society should be organized or what justice requires. Our company was founded in Silicon Valley, but we seem to share fewer and fewer of the technology sector's values and commitments. Software projects with our nation's defense and intelligence agencies, <laughs> sorry, intelligence agencies, whose missions are to keep us safe. Okay. Mm. Have been have become controversial, while companies built on advertising dollars are commonplace. For many consumer internet companies, our thoughts and inclinations, behaviors, and browsing habits are the product for sale. The slogans and marketing of many of the Valley's largest technology firms attempt to obscure the simple fact. So he's obviously calling out Facebook and Google, well, Google I, I, specifically, there, right there. There, there are two things I would want to, like you know, sort of stress there. The first of which is that Peter Thiel who is, you know, like like the on the board and ultimately the, the chairman of Palantir, the the, the mm-hmm. most important figure in terms of running the show, uh, is also one of the handful of people on the board of Facebook. Yes. And so he's sort of like, like known as like the loyal opposition on the board, right? Because he is like the the anti globalist. I mean it's I, I think that he he's like a really like Peter Thiel's a venerated guy and he occupied, mm-hmm. like, you know, Zuckerberg and those people, they take him, they take him literally and seriously to put it. Plus well. he, he has diversity by being gay. <laughs> 
I mean, for those circles, perhaps, or not so much, actually. But I, I do think, and also, when you say that, like, the defense and intelligence agencies uh, bit there, I, I do think that, like, there's another, it's it's worth pointing out that, like, Palantir is among, is not the only, it's not even the only company with a Lord of the Rings inspired or like a fantasy name funded by Peter Thiel that yeah. uh, like deals with national security stuff. Palmer Lucky, the uh, meme lord who uh, co-founded Oculus VR, his company Anduril makes like, you know, like advanced, uh, like, you know, like like drones and like border patrol kind of uh, technology, for example, um, is also funded by Peter Thiel and invested in this. So there's mm-hmm. like a kind of mission statement that CARP is making here. I, that I think is also sort of like a blueprint for other companies that might want to follow in his footstep, because mm. obviously, you know, government track, government contracts and government and defense procurement is an incredibly lucrative business and trying to articulate some, you know, some sort of like, like, like position of moral supremacy that you can while taking those right, is sort right. of critical to being able to, you know, withstand the public pressure that these companies naturally face by helping out people like ICE. Well, and securing a position against Google and Facebook, right? Even while like maintaining all of those relationships, all of it, you know, it's all marketeering, right? It doesn't fucking matter. But kind of by, I, I, I think positioning themselves against Google and Facebook, who, by the way, right now are facing uh, a lot of congressional scrutiny, right? As platforms, uh, specifically, um, you know, in the in you know, with all the like fake news shit that all all of Congress is worried about, and the way that uh, Facebook gets away with not moderating comments or whatever through maintaining publisher status, like they're getting a lot of scrutiny there. They're getting a lot of scrutiny as monopolies. They're getting a lot of scrutiny for business practices, etc. So it makes sense for on on a, you know a couple levels for Palantir as they're going public. Remember, so they're trying to get you know, share prices up and, you know, get people to invest in the company in that way. Uh, And they're trying to get more contracts, which we're going to get into. Um, It makes sense for them to then create this little market niche for themselves against these companies, both philosophically and now physically away from Silicon Valley. Well, well, with Google in particular, uh, I mean, I mean, I'm sure some listeners remember the protests at Google over their involvement in Project Maven, uh, and uh, they later, I, I think, they just let the contract expire, and Palantir actually took that over. That was like an AI. I'm too stupid to fucking understand what most of this is. I just know it's all bad because, well, it's called something called Project Something, uh, and Google and both Palantir involved. But it was like AI software for the military and Palantir gladly took that over. There's also the case of Teal writing in the New York Times, the failing New York Times, excuse me, uh, an op-ed asking why it's okay for how come Google gets to go to China and work with China on AI, which is sensitive national security stuff or potentially, whereas like Google employees, you know, talk about how working with the U.S. military is wrong. And like, you know, he has a point there because like, you know, Google's technology is evil. It doesn't matter if they, all of this technology is evil. All technology is evil. Uh, but like, it's, it's, it's like he was obviously like, that was a very pointed op-ed he wrote there because even though Google was just working with the civilian sector in China, he was positioning that as like, well, you don't know where the technology is going. And that kind of plays into like Palantir's whole like national security mythos and of course being part of that uh sort of conglomeration now means that you're an anti-china hawk 
And and there's a nice sort of like I think kind of simpatico intellectual ideological component to that with Teal specifically because Teal's sort of most well known I guess like if you could call it like an intellectual contribution to Silicon Valley. Um, I mean it's sort of like the central principle of his book, which is zero to one, which is that like monopolies are good and the way for a start the aspiration of every startup should be to completely dominate whatever market it's in. And if you look at companies like Google, like Amazon, like even Uber, which loses money, the mm-hmm. thing that they all have in common and that this sort of iteration of Silicon Valley has in common is that these are all companies that are completely trying to dominate and own the markets in which they operate. And that's, you know, I, I, would, I would stress that that's not like a, a particularly novel insight that the larger market share you have, the more profit you have. But it's sort of one of these things where it's like, well, why is it that Google is like literally one of the most like three or four most like valuable companies in the world and it's because it was fusing like you know like developments in software and the fact that software got better and better and cheaper and cheaper um with that sort of thinking about like total market domination and like you know government and defense contracting is some of the most you know it's i mean you're talking about like like tens of millions of dollars are the smallest contracts that Palantir and other companies are bidding for in some cases. And so if you're completely dominating government procurement for one, just, you know, one small piece of it, then you're going to make a whole lot of fucking money. And part of the way that you do that and part of the way that you frame this is by saying, look, our competitors, they're compromised on security. You can't trust them. And by the way, we're also the bleeding edge. We're the people who are doing all of the most high-end stuff. And it's that last point that on perhaps which Palantir is getting into a little bit of trouble. Well, before we get into exactly, I mean, we've kind of teased what they do, but we we should get into exactly what they do and what, what the kind of, I mean, if you can call it innovation that they're providing. But I do want to bring, I mean, I want to circle back. We're talking about tech, so I can say circle back, I guess. <laughs> I want to circle back to something that Brace mentioned, which was mm-hmm. the China positioning. Oh, and yeah, I we think we got to synergize that. that. Yeah, yeah. I do think it's very interesting, given that, um, I mean, I don't know if our listeners have been paying attention to the election, but obviously, like, the anti-China rhetoric from both Joe Biden and Donald Trump is reaching, like, kind of China. comical levels. I mean... I, I have... Whenever anyone says China now, I just hear Trump going, China in my head. <laughs> he, Thank he, you for he, explaining that because exactly. just interjecting that I was very confused. Yeah. Well, he hyphenates it, which I think is really like, I don't know. That's very, that's very streamlined and synergistic to me. Yeah. But it seems like um, regardless of who wins the election, mm-hmm. that China hawks are within the Pentagon and state department and God knows where else are, uh, you know, their stock is up. We'll say, um, Absolutely, and, and so for Teal to, and you know, Teal being a very obvious or very uh, blatant and and public, um, you know, critic of China and their relationship with these Silicon Valley companies, which again he's positioning himself against, makes sense for him trying to secure more and more defense contracts, right? Because if he's ideologically aligned, he's buddies, you know, easier to get. So 
let's get into it. Okay, so we've said that they're a surveillance company. We've said that they gather data. Again, like we said at the beginning of the episode, this is a company that, you know, people kind of have an idea of what they do, but no one really does. And looking into it gets complicated and confusing. So let's like break down exactly what Palantir does. So I guess the like sort of simplest way to understand Palantir is like from the perspective of like one of its clients. So mm-hmm. Palantir only has about 125 clients. I think I, I read that in a Bloomberg article. And that means that like, you know, it's it mainly works with extremely large corporations or the government. Um, or and, and the government that can mean large federal agencies or police departments. And so let's say you are the Los Angeles Police Department. You mm-hmm. probably have shot spotter technology, which are highly advanced, which are like you know highly sensitive microphones trained trained to recognize and geolocate gunshots and report them. Although, to, although like, to be fair with those, they do sometimes actually quite often, uh, at least in San Francisco, the technology does not necessarily recognize or it recognizes things that aren't gunshots, but large, sh- large, loud, sharp noises. Like cars backfiring. And in one exactly. case in Connecticut, like almost a decade ago, I believe, there was actually a case where ShotSpotter recording something somebody said was supposed it was uh, prosecutors wanted to use in a trial. So obviously there's yeah. like insane creep with all this stuff. Um, and, and so ShotSpotter is one example or um, the proximity of parking tickets on a block sure. or something. But basically just like all of the random bits of like, you know, what we would call data that uh, like a single uh, that these kinds of entities collect. And the whole idea of Palantir, like the most like high level dream is that Palantir synthesizes all of that data using its proprietary algorithms and technology and, and Russian dressing or whatever. And it like and it, and it funnels it into like a single usable piece of software like a console that people at its client companies can access and use and that through that like they can understand you know like draw connections and mm-hmm. understand you know what that data may tell them and that is like ideally how it works but like in reality it's a little bit more complicated yeah i mean it seems like um you know, there was a great article that just came out in New York Magazine called uh, Inside Palantir, or no, it's called Techie Software Soldier Spy, which is very cute. <laughs> that is really, um, oh, I love that. Also, yeah. great, great, uh, you know, as much as I shouldn't be, huge John LeCar fan. Also, no, he's incredible. He's great. The movie is great. The movie is fine. No, no, no. The thing to watch is the 1979 BB, the BBC miniseries. No, the BBC one. That's the it's one I'm talking about. It's yeah, fantastic. No, also, it's Smiley's perfect. People. It's great. Yeah. Oh, my, my dad God, had that so on good. DVD when it's, I was there. Uh, it's I guess for the people listening, Alec Guinness, Alec Guinness, who played Obi-Wan Kenobi, he plays George Smiley. This is a far superior role because Star Wars is a children's movie, and this is yes. grown-up entertainment, but I highly suggest that you watch it. It's on YouTube, all for free. It's free. It's, 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 it's free. It's excellent. You have also, no excuse. also, if you are uh, maybe doing guard duty in Syria and like you think it's going to be a quiet night, it is okay for you to put your kefi kind of like up towards your ears and with one headphone listen to the BBC radio play of uh, of the dishonorable schoolboy. It's okay oh, to do that. That's actually the honorable schoolboy, but whatever. The honorable schoolboy. Sorry, well, some of us just know more. That's just how. No, it is. I, I, you know, it's actually funny because he actually wrote dishonorable schoolboy, but it's only in manuscript, and only if your podcast is really good will he give it to you. So maybe you didn't get it, Noah. I'm sorry, that felt mean. I really like. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. So it's in New York Magazine uh, last week. It's called Techie Software Soldier Spy by Sharon Weinberger, and it's a really incredible. I mean, we'll we'll link to it. Um, it's a really, really well-reported piece, uh, and a lot of 
<laughs> really great quotes. It's uh, it's good, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really it's a great read. Um but basically what it what it seems like is that uh as you say, you know, that's you know, Noah kind of outlined what the dream of Palantir is, right? Synthesizing all of this data for you know imagining the possibilities of what these, you know, either like we said, corporations or more likely uh, you know, government agencies, how they can then use and harvest this data. But it, you know, from what has been detailed in this piece, um, it, it seems like what they're tripping up with is the fact that Palantir has a very glossy interface, mm-hmm. but it's almost impossible to read this amount of data in any kind of like real way, in any meaningful way. Well, certainly machines can't do it because part of the appeal of Palantir is that like it's given you this technology and sort of the implicit and I think explicit promise with that is that this technology will do the bulk of the legwork and, and, and actually kind of just figure it out for you. Whereas like it's like with all these technology companies and specifically like Theranos comes to mind here, also a national security connected company in the case of, uh, of Mad Dog Mattis on being on the board there. Uh, it it doesn't actually really work without, uh, let's say, a certain amount of human involvement. That's pretty difficult to do. I, it, and that's sort of like a really essential thing here, which is like, why is it that like Google and Facebook have like these incredible valuations and turn out like, you know, billions in profits every year? And it's because like they have like using a relatively small number of engineers and uh, executives and so on who are all paid really highly. Um, on top of obviously a contract labor uh, force um, that is largely unseen, um, they have been able to you know create something to make using software that can you know generate and re- and, and replace what was previously done as the labor of many mm-hmm. many more thousands of people. Like you know for just by way of example with Facebook, because I think that's especially often a tough one to talk about with this stuff. It's just hard to think through. Like think about how there used to be all these like you know classified sections and ad agencies and all of these specific things that you had to do in order to show mm-hmm. an ad to the people you wanted to show it to. And Facebook literally just, just destroyed them. And Google, obviously, in the same way with search advertising. And so in Palantir's case, they're saying, listen, all of those analysts that you used to have to pay or that you might otherwise pay, um, or, you know, like, like, like we are, we're offering something that can take the place of those. But the trouble that Palantir has is that, as Brace was saying, like, well, often with this technology and like this, you know, where, where phrases like artificial intelligence get thrown around, how much is AI and how much is actually just a very highly paid human being, like pushing buttons and, and giving Precisely. advice is, you know, like how much is which and what then actually is the value add that Palantir provides. And that, you know, is sort of like the question, I, I think like Wall Street, for example, is fairly agnostic on that question. Ever since, since Palantir, it's been a day since Palantir went public as we're recording this, and their stock hasn't really gone up or down. I think that there's a lot of people who are holding their breath on seeing whether or not Palantir could actually ever turn, the, you know, like realize the value proposition, which is kind of insane for a company that's, you know, worth $21 billion on the open market. Well, I just want to point out one of the quotes that I just find so, I mean, it was just incredible uh, in this piece in New York Magazine is from, you know, former CIA official. And he's talking about, you know, the the problems that exactly you're laying out that they run into with this expense, with this incredible technology and what it means for, uh, you know, the labor they have to hire then to handle it. And he says, the moment you introduce an expensive IT engineer into the process, you've cut your profits. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the clearest, clearest distilled uh, definition of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. This is exactly uh, a, a perfect distillation of that. And that is, that's, that's, the, that's the hard limit that all of these tech companies run into, right? Yeah, I mean, Uber is like the great classic example of like where this is becoming yeah. a problem because Uber has never made a profit and it's incredibly difficult to see how they or even like Lyft or its competitors could do the same. And it's also, you know, like it's also dislodging what were previously profitable companies. I mean, take Grubhub, for example. Grubhub existed, you know, was on Wall Street traded and turned nice profits and, and everything small, but, you know, it was but what was a real viable company. But then all of a sudden, all of these companies that were committed to hemorrhaging money like DoorDash and Uber Eats um, mm-hmm. as a division of Uber, they start getting in the space and they start just burning cash and setting on fire in an effort to gain as much market share as possible. And naturally, profits fall for everybody because it turns out that the innovations that they were relying on, like self-driving cars, weren't coming quickly enough. And it, you know, even with demo- demolishing labor laws around the country to employ drivers, they still weren't actually they haven't been able to actually make the numbers work. And that's you know, like dynamically that is the same challenge that Palantir now faces. Yeah, I mean, the, another example with Uber, and I always think about this with the self-driving car thing, is that I remember years and years ago, they were testing self-driving cars in San Jose. And the problem that they they, they were doing really well in San Jose, right? Because San Jose gets has a lot of tax revenue, so they have great roads. And the roads are like very well-maintained, good traffic lights, good lanes, easily demarcated, et cetera, et cetera, right? Then they started testing the self-driving cars out in places not in Silicon Valley that don't Mm. have a lot of tax revenue where the roads are really messed up. And what they realized was the self-driving cars could not recognize lanes or like broken stoplights or anything that was like broken infrastructure, which by the way is basically most of America. And so none of this technology would work or would be applicable without massive investments in public infrastructure in order to uh, bring all of it up to speed, right? Well, well, our good friend Trump has got that infrastructure bill coming any day. Though, yeah, so. it's yeah. infrastructure it's, week again. I mean, exactly. you know, as as a story to relate, like one of the uh, three years ago when I was uh, covering Silicon Valley for Vice News, I went to Uber's like autonomous driving headquarters in Pittsburgh, and they put on the show for all these journalists where you know we rode around in the cars, and the explanation that they gave for why they were centering their operations in Pittsburgh beyond the fact that they just raided the uh, uh, they raided the faculty department uh, at Carnegie Mellon um, was that they were like, look, Pittsburgh is like totally like it's it's like topographically like, you know, it has all of the risks, you know, like, like it's uneven streets, lots of hills, super windy. It's crumbling. It's a piece of shit. Like the whole city's mm-hmm. falling apart. It's perfect for experimentation. And then it turns out like it came out in court proceedings during the Anthony Lewandowski uh, Google Uber lawsuit um, that the whole like thing like that experience that, that, that ride that I'd been given in a self-driving car was actually just like manufactured that it was for show. And so, like, what, the, like the they pre-planned the route or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was all Incredible. like it was, and 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 so there's like Scam always coins. like like embedded and meshed in in these companies. Um, is I think like within the culture of a lot of these companies is like a fake it till you make it kind of thing with a lot of this technology. Um, and and it's just it's just so wrapped up in how they think and approach these issues. 
One small anecdote about self-driving cars that I was told by a journalist who might have been there uh, at that Carnegie Mellon bullshit or whatever you went to, um, because he was covering self-driving cars for a, a big story uh, in, in, in a major magazine. And he told me that um, this was about three or four years ago, three years ago. He said that uh, this was right around the time that one of these companies, it was either Google or Uber, I can't remember which, one of their cars hit somebody and, and like pretty badly injured them on a, on a city street. And that employees at the other company, which is, again, it's either Google or Uber, I can't remember, were like f- privately furious because they had wanted to draw first blood. That makes total sense. Like Uber, I mean, Mike Isaac's book, Super Pumped, is a really, really good resource for this. And and I reviewed it for The Baffler last year and have pulled out some of the anecdotes. But like, I mean, it's very similar. And I'd argue that Palantir is the same way where it's like, I mean, or, or that other company, Clearview AI, that has like the really yes. psycho founder. Right, right, like, right. Like who, where he'll just go up to a party, take a picture of your face, and then he'd look like using his company's like app. Be like, look at all this other shit I found out about you. Um, yeah. It's like a party trick. At Uber, they use this thing called like God Mode where they could literally like as a party trick they would put on a screen at a party showing where people were going back and forth in their ubers like employees at the company like as like a party favor just tracking like you know and and i think sick that that's you know it's a boundary pushing that is like in you know it's 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 to say it's in the dna of these companies is like it almost feels fucking trite just because of how many like times like they like put on display how abusive they're willing to be (laughs) if that's dna call me human crisper Oh my god. Uh, sorry, sorry, I was just fixing my shoelace there. Yeah. I want to get back to something you mentioned, which is that, um, you know, Palantir, like Uber, like all of the, you know, whatever it is, the five or six other unicorns of Silicon Valley, that, you know, they require this monopolization in order to turn a profit. And yet none mm. of them have been able to make any of that happen, right? Yeah. I mean, that's very similar with like Tesla, for example. Like everybody wants to know, like, why is Tesla oh, stock? It's, I mean, why is Tesla stock so high? Liz and I got theories. Don't worry. But the, <laughs> like, the most basic answer is because like investors take at face value the Tesla proposition, which is that all cars are one day going to be Teslas because yes. they are so far ahead as electric car manufacturers that like they're, they're just going to totally dominate. I mean, like, monopoly is and, and monopolization in all of these companies is so embarrassing except again the thing is they don't actually like they, they don't like turn profits and so i think one of the things as it comes relates to palantir and sort of like this teal vision um of how society works is at least you know where it's like like you know the best companies the most innovative ones are, are monopolies um that you know like that are able to produce things like incredible digital hoover vacuums for all of your personal life um i think that there's something sort of like you know I mean, I guess to me, it's just, I mean, aside from just saying that it's worth pointing out how creepy it is, I guess as it relates to Palantir, it's worth seeing, like, you know, if it doesn't make money now, like, how long can it continue to not make money? Like, how long is it going to get subsidized? How long is it going to keep burning money like that? And, you know, we're like a decade into the, a decade and a half and to almost going on two decades into the existence of some of these places that still haven't ever turned a profit. And it makes you wonder, just like, are we willing to tolerate, like, like, you know, like, these kinds of money losing companies like well, wait, but who's forever. we when you say that exactly there you go 
Like, because that's what's interesting to me is that you're, what we're saying is, you know, and this is like, okay, this gets into some other stuff, but maybe we, you know, whatever, let's do it. Okay, so the idea being that in a rational society, in the quote unquote real world, companies mm-hmm. turn a profit, right? That's the market. And there should not, if a company doesn't turn a profit, then it shouldn't exist. Why does it continue to exist? Uber, perfect example. I mean, look, I've said the same thing about Tesla. It's, I, I think, People who listen to this podcast know or have a you know suspicion. Like I think Tesla is a fucking sham. I think it's a Ponzi scheme. I think it's Enron. Okay, now and I have my reasons, which we're not getting into on this episode. But um, you know, where we go, one we go all Tesla Q. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, shout out Tesla Q. Um, but my point being that that is assuming a lot already right that is basing mm-hmm. that you now you're you're operating from a place of saying that there is a there is something real underneath this right yeah. does that make any sense well there's either like a social need or there is like a market niche or whatever that needs to get filled and these companies are filling it so it's like in that sort of framework it almost becomes like they're they're doing this sort of like market public service or something you know where like uber has made you know uh abundant cheap cheap transport available to everybody. And but it is like, done so while making the people who invest in it lots and lots of money. Well, like that's the, the thing. And providing, and providing work for people who got laid off from their three other jobs or maybe still working their three other jobs. I mean, Uber, it's like, I, mean, I can't stress enough, Uber is about to overthrow a law in California. Like, yeah. I'm almost positive that they're going to they're gonna be able to pass uh, Proposition 22, which is, which is essentially overturning a law that was passed. It's still in the court, but that was passed last year, or the, excuse me, this year, to make Uber employees uh, employees, which, which they're not currently. And so, like, it, these companies have, like, a great deal of power and influence and money without actually having to make money. It's, like, it's, it's incredible. Well, and it's because they're sort of, you know, trailblazers. I mean, not so much in the case of Palantir, which is in a lot of ways like sort of um, like I think of Palantir is easier to think of as coming in sideways, sort of like trying to take up a bunch of money that like would otherwise go to large defense contractors who are also in turn sometimes Palantir clients like Northrop Grumman or something like that or consultancies and what have you. And I think in the case of like these other companies, part of what they've done is, I mean, like, like, like. Uber and Lyft and 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 the 1099, you know, quote unquote gig economy companies have done more in the last 15 years to eviscerate American labor law protections than I mean anything else I can think of as like an individual yeah. like you know discrete specific force. Well, they they've eviscerated just the general concept of it because they've shown that like you can just baldly not only ignore it but acknowledge that you're ignoring it and present that as a good thing and that that, that the suckers will buy a ticket to your show, you know? But I think the other thing that really trips me up, and I got into a conversation this morning with someone about this, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And he was saying that, you know, there is, it sounds, you know, absurd, right? And politically, I want to argue against this. The idea that the real economy is downstream from the financial economy, from the stock market, right? That's like every po- like political bone in my body tells me that is absurd. No, the real economy is separate, right? But look at what has happened post-COVID. You've got basically a uh, you know massive return for people at the top. Like they, ev- almost everyone at the top has made more money, has got their losses back from 
the, you know, the downturn in the market pre-COVID mm. or in March, April, they've recovered, which includes, by the way, the surges in stock prices at Tesla and across the board at Apple, whatever. And yeah, a lot of that, you know, whatever the Fed, I'm not going to get into that anyway. But, you know, those people and have it. recovered. Now those companies are floated, right? They're continuing to soar. So they're continuing to exist in the real economy. This, like, the idea that these are somehow now separate, like, it, it, it's, it's, I, I don't know how to, I, I don't know. It's like, it's something that I really wrestle with, trying to understand and articulate this, this, like, fundamental change that has occurred in our economy. And I really do believe that something has changed. I mean, there's a lot of, I think that the, you know, one way that Palantir fits into it specifically with its IPO is that it's, you know, like, like all these other companies have just IPO'd and we're at an all time slow, like, 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 like trickle um, for companies that are going public right now, quite obviously, Mm -hmm. because there's a pandemic going on, but also more generally, there has been a trend of companies not going public or going public later and so on. Um, it's just sort of like, it's like a reverse of the dot-com bubble of the early 2000s. And what is now like sort of pushing these companies to go public in part is that they can allow employees to sell shares, but also because if they want to get further investment in the future, they need to demonstrate a degree of transparency that like future investors would accept. And so they've had these kind of limited IPOs called direct listings like Palantir has had. And what's been really interesting is that like a company with as many risk factors as Palantir that, you know, for example, let's say Joe Biden's administration, like, uh, uh, like, let's say Joe Biden gets elected. And there is all of a sudden, you know, like, Joe Biden is not going to fucking like, you know, change the direction of American empire or anything. But let's say there, like, you know, budget increases that under a Trump administration would have been allotted for services like Palantir go down. Like, that's a very real risk. It's a headwind. And it's one that Palantir actually warns about in its, its financial disclosures for going public. But at the same time, there are all these kinds of like big risk factors for a company that doesn't make any money and it chooses to go public now and its stock is like doing fairly level. People, investors believe that it's a company worth $20 billion, which had you asked people just a couple of years ago if they thought was the case, a lot of people would have said it was a ludicrous overvaluation. In fact, that was sort of, I think, like the, you know, sort of quiet consensus among a lot of people within the last couple of years. But now, as you know, because of what Liz is saying, companies like Palantir that not only do seedy shit, but are also like sort of already, you know, investor subsidized, you know, projects Mm -hmm. are now like thriving in a sense. You know, Palantir's stock price being flat from its IPO is a tremendously wonderful thing for Palantir. So when you do look at headlines about it, you know, as like a not necessarily being able to parse the specifics of it, just know that like this is a gr- this has been a great week for Palantir and next week will probably be even better. Even with by the way AOC announcing an investigation or or asking for more details from Palantir because of its contracts and work with ICE. That's, you know, it almost feels like barely a headwind. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. So she, it sounds like she filed that a couple weeks ago, right? Or it, early in September. And it only kind of came to light with the, you know, when you, you know, when a company goes public, when it files for an IPO, it has to disclose um, a lot of public financial record, a lot of, pu- you know, it has to make a lot of uh, internal records public, basically. Um, and so that was one of the things that came out that Congress was interested or AOC and, and Congress was interested in looking into more detail, the ins and outs of some of the contracts that Palantir 
Right, and, and the specific uh, issues were, and the they were working with the the activist group Mihente, um was involved in uh, in this, uh, from what I understand. And the idea was about ICE's, uh, sorry, Palantir's work specifically with ICE, um, because that has been the single contract that's gotten Palantir in the most hot water, in which they have defended. It's Carp has defended uh, repeatedly that they're, you know, Matt Carp, yeah. stop defending this. <laughs> Um, and a lot of it had to do with the Palantir, like whether or not their software was specifically used in detentions and setting up the camps and so on. Yeah, which which I can't imagine it wouldn't be because the way Palantir's software works, and, and, and I mean, in with the LAPD or with police departments at least, is creating these sort of like general, um, like I hate to use this word twice in an episode, but mosaics of a person's life. And so, you know, where they go to school, you know, where they work, you know, you know where they live, you know who they hang out with. And not only can you nab maybe the 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 specific migrant that you're looking for, but you can kind of get this like insight into a world of who they're hanging out with, especially, you know, many people who move to whatever country often stay in communities of people that are also from the same country they're from. And so you can you can easier kind of get a a a, a vision of of however many of these people that you want to get. I mean, especially in 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 we're, we're talking about crime with the LAPD, for instance, is that like. You know, they have these massive files that they're essentially building up on everybody, not even necessarily people who are under investigation for a crime. I mean, with some of these, you do have to enter in a case number and stuff like that. But my God, can you find a way around that? Like, it's 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 incredible. I mean, it's it's, you know, not to take away from Palantir essentially coasting by on a certain degree of bullshit, but just the fact that they are collecting these these agencies are collecting this massive amount of highly personal information is just incredible. I mean, I think a really good way of sort of like like showing like the, the extreme risks of what you just described is that like um, uh, and this is a story from 2018 about that came out about when Palantir was doing work for New Orleans uh, mm-hmm. And how they use like a predictive policing system that basically mapped out like, you know, like quote unquote gang affiliations, which are, you know, like anytime you hear a prosecutor talk about gang affiliations, like immediately be skeptical. It's just or like predictive policing. Exactly. Because the entire yeah. like, I mean, it's all bullshit, but like especially gang affiliations are basically ways to use it, like a lot of the ways that like. Like they talk about gangs and law enforcement and Palantir identifies them is basically like creating networks that can be prosecuted under the RICO mm-hmm. statutes that were initially created to prosecute the mob, like way back when, yeah. organized, like real OC. And so I think like, you know, the New Orleans story that was in The Verge from 2018, what it shows is that like the kind of, you know, network mapping that was used to identify gang members and predictive policing and stuff like that, you know, you could see it getting just as easily deployed in the ways that Brace is describing, where, you know, it's about identifying undocumented immigrants and tracking them for like, you know, quite obviously like nefarious ends. Yeah, like what Palantir is really and like pretty baldly seeking to provide is like this the structure for like it basically brings the patriot acts dream into reality right mm-hmm. where they are able to monitor every little piece of your life you know from from what you're doing online to what you're doing in the real world to who i mean many of these companies like uber and stuff included if you're having an affair they can tell you know if you're if you're you know checking out or you work 10 minutes early they can tell they can they can build up a picture of your life that you couldn't even fucking believe that you probably don't even understand living your own life uh, exactly how much that they 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 can monitor and it's incredible and it, you know I, I think a lot of people will call this fascism 
this isn't actually, I mean, this, this is all perfectly permissible under the framework of liberal democracy, which by the way is also bad. Uh, and, and so like it is, it is, you know, this is, this is something that I think that the government will absolutely pursue no matter what administration. And, is and I mean, you can look at other governments as having like, you know, in, in the UK, for example, GCHQ, mm-hmm. which is their like CIA, basically. I know that we say that it's MI6, yeah. but like GCHQ is like the, the real like intelligence yeah, hub there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, real heads now. And the like, you know, like they, they have way more expansive powers than mm. um, the CIA or FBI do here. And they have way more, like they're way more plugged well, in. They also have there's so much more surveillance exactly i mean the cctv system is vast and you'll get arrested for saying something on facebook or that like that woman in melbourne who got who got arrested for like saying she was going to go to like an anti uh anti uh lockdown protest or whatever you know they came to her home and arrested and you may not agree with what these people are saying but that's incredible that 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 the police can do that in any country uh, and 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 again, like people will call this fascism, but no, this is this is absolutely totally fine in liberal democracy. There's the uh, a writer, um, like thinker on this, Professor Shoshana Zuboff wrote a book that came out last mm. year called yeah. Surveillance Capitalism. That's like it's a very big long book about all this. Um, and it has some like makes some really interesting observations. But one way in which it kind of falls short that um, Ben Tarnoff identified really well as a way of talking about this is that like, there's kind of like an instinct when thinking about this really abstract stuff, right? Like all of this, like data, all of this information about us to almost talk about it as like almost like spiritual terms, like that, you mm-hmm. know, our privacy has been taken from us and the cost has been, you know, like, like it, it's that like, there's a psychic damage uh, and toll that is being wrought by removing our privacy this way. And, and I think mm-hmm. it's really I important. BPD. <laughs> I think it's really important to like, take this back from the realm of like, like the spiritual in the sense like that this is actually no no there's like a concrete material harm that's being posed by this stuff and that there's a reason that these companies are so interested in doing as much as possible to break down the barriers between you know different sets of data and so on they want to do as much as possible to collapse our like private lives into the fucking like you know like sewage funnel of information that they can collect and while you know on an individual basis none of us may ever be well some of us on this call more than others may never be like that excessively snooped on or uh, like you know targeted for this kind of stuff it is absolutely Absolutely, like, you know, we're seeing like the gradual creation of like a broad kind of dragnet that will, you know, is is more and more able to compromise us in this way. Like, you know, we just saw this summer, like this, you know, sort of like, you know, like there were a bunch of like a mass movement protests in the street, like in all these people, uh, you know, like, like, you know, fighting and, 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 and you know, uh, like fighting for what they believe in and all these, you know, like, you know, wonderful things we see in the street. Except that, like, you know, the the capacity to restrain that and to fight back for it is being developed, like, you know, more substantively with just tools like this, you know, slowly mm-hmm. and slowly every day. And while Palantir by itself may not be, like, the greatest threat, like, what it's allowed to get away with, it's not a good sign. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, <laughs> something uh, something that I, that I uh, pulled out of that, New York Magazine piece was um, an incredible quote from Richard Pearl. Richard, Richard, of- <laughs> Richard Pearl is uh, you'll learn about him if you listen to Blowback. He was. Yeah, I was uh, going to say Noah. You should tell everyone, but yeah, no spoiler alert. Yeah, listen to the podcast. Um, no, he's a grand architect of the Iraq War, and um, can all you call around- him the Grand Dame? 
Yeah. I really like when someone's referred to the Grand Dame as something. The Grand Dame. Yeah, she's of the, the Grand Iraq Neoconservative War. Dame of the Iraq War. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is what he had to say about, about um, Palantir. He said, This is great. I have mixed feelings about the CIA, but their angel investment in Palantir may have been their most inspired move. And that is from the architect of the Iraq War. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Palantir has been used in the in the field by the military for for a little while now, and, and Palantir's sort of road to to Afghanistan, at least, is is really interesting because it sort of mirrors Teal's uh, personal way that he really can kind of conducts these influence operations. It, that instead of like really just like slamming the top brass and wowing them with with this tech, is he actually see, uh, sought to supplant the technology they were using in the field with a more essentially similar technology, but like again with a better user, user interface by testing it out on mid level like officers and lower level soldiers first. And something that I I was sort of astounded by is that Palantir actually has something called like I believe forward engineers that they sent to Afghanistan on missions with these troops and 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 the and the way i mean if if you want to talk about unbridled surveillance i mean uh, afghanistan obviously has a vastly different infrastructure than you know for instance pittsburgh or los angeles but 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 the way that they they conduct infrastructure or excuse me that the way they conduct surveillance there is just in this total like i mean there's not even the whisper of something being wrong with this with that and 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 and, you know, for one of the things they really point to is that they make these heat maps of where attacks are. But they also, like, make these profiles for, for as many people as they can possibly get in the country. And, and I mean, this is an occupying force in what should be a sovereign country that is essentially mapping out its citizenry and, and often at times assassinating it via those maps. It's, it's, it's really something. And, you know, Palantir has... has uh, like we we mentioned, Alex Carp not exactly getting along with uh, many of the people he interacts with. Uh, uh, Noah was telling me earlier the generals, of course, are no exception. Um, famously, this do, this podcast does have a a high percentage of of, of what you might call top brass listeners. Um, so you know, shout out to you guys. But uh, but it, but like uh, they, they've really sort of. I mean, they sued the U.S. Army for Christ's sake. You know, they they've really sought to get in there and become the. Uh, essentially like the the technology that 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 intelligence officers both in the field and in the rear use to to um to figure out what what 14 year old they're going to shoot next and and i mean it's it's like it's it's like in unfa- like the pentagon budget is is literally yeah. unfathomably large like mm-hmm. on september 10th 2001 don rumsfeld gave a press conference at which he you know like ex- like talked about how there was actually like an incredible accounting crisis at the pentagon there were like literally yes. billions of dollars they didn't know oh, where they yeah. went they were terrified about what you know he like 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 uh, that was where don rumsfeld's head was on september 10th he was like did we do are we about to do 911 like what is going on with this What's, money? Oh God! Like, I mean, have you ever just misplaced a few billion dollars and then it just shows up on an yeah. Air Americans American Airlines flight? You ever, you ever told an FBI agent like, no, don't worry about that. That guy's just taking flight lessons because he yeah. wants to go back to Saudi Arabia and, and teach his boys. How to yeah, play. he wants to take a Cessna from Orlando to Riyadh. Um, exactly. I think like the you know they like they like they're like the Pentagon is responsible and the defense sector is just like such an unfathomably large money pit. Like one of the biggest growth areas for Google and Microsoft right now is in their cloud computing 
computing businesses, like Absolutely. Google Cloud, Microsoft Azure, and they try and sell, like they bid constantly, you know, and Amazon as well, they bid constantly against one another for these kinds of contracts. And Palantir, you know, trying to stake out its own little slice of pie before anyone else mm. can get there. Um, you know, I mean, it all makes sense. And it's part of why also, again, Palantir's like, like sense of, you know, positioning itself as like, we're not like those other like kids at school is because they want to say that like, listen, we're not doing any such shit with the data. We're just giving you the raw uncut Intel. Like it's literally like Brad scale data. It's basically Brad Pitt, like breathily talking about the raw shit. I think that's the shit, man. The raw intelligence. Well, and they're saying, I mean, they're saying, oh, we're not selling it to advertisers. Right. We're, like, yeah. we're, you guys we're, hate brands. You guys hate being, you hate all the advertising models. <laughs> you hate all the shit you see on the internet. We're not doing that. We're not the bad guys. We're just working with the good old, you know, troops. That's yeah. it. You and, know? We're, and, and it's, I think that there's like a real, you know, like there's, I mean, they're able to get away with a lot in, in, in that kind of framing and positioning. And it's been really interesting, I guess, to see also how, you know, like, one of the like risk factors that uh, a lot of like Wall Street analysts uh, kind of point out when they talk about Palantir now, which is interesting because they have to talk about it in sort of an abstract way, though, is the fact that like you know a lot of who Palantir has struggled to get contracts with, but who's an obvious like important like potential client are police forces and uh, domestic law enforcement yeah. agencies, and they have struggled in the past historically with those. NYPD doesn't work with Palantir anymore, famously. LAPD had struggles with Palantir. And I think that, like, it's going to be a really, you know, the degree to, like, like, like what, what these analysts warn about is, you know, will Palantir be able to start to mend those kinds of fences and uh, bring the war home, so to speak? And I think that that's sort of going to be, you know, if Palantir is really, really successful, then I think it's a sign that uh, a lot more Americans are unfortunately living under the yoke of Palantir. Like that, you know, that's, that's going to be a pretty one-to-one connection that we can make. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, just, you know, to go back to what we started with at the beginning of all this is that the only way that these guys can be successful is if they monopolize, right? And what do they monopolize? It's the same thing with Uber. It's, it's the same thing with, uh, WeWork, right? It's monopolizing entire sectors that should be, I mean, that becomes so large, they should be nationalized, right? That, the only reason Uber exists is because it's replaced public transportation infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. And that's and that's its ultimate goal as well. It has to. It has to become basically an arm of the state one way or the other um, in order to succeed. And it's the same thing with Palantir. It has to be the single provider of raw data, not just because it's, it's literal business. It, in order for them to even create these kind of... Um, you know, think of them as like, you know, like a woven fabric that are of like individual profiles in order to create the most like intricate and specific profile, which is what all increasingly what these contractors want. They want really sophisticated data, really specific data, right? It's not a wide net that anyone wants to cast anymore. It's a it's a deep net, right? You want to go into the depths. In order to do that, they have to hoover up as like more and more data from more and more places so that they can figure out how to pull it all together and weave it into precise uh, fabric profiles, right? Again, the only way to do that is to become so large that you challenge public power, that you challenge democratic accountability. That's the only way to do it. It's the only way. 
And, and the thing is, the, the sort of sad truth about that is that there's no real democratic accountability to speak of. There's sort of the idea of it with these things anyways. But like the, the thing that drives me so crazy when talking about this stuff, man, is that like what we are describing is just horrific, right? Like the stuff that we're talking about right now, you know, it makes me sick to my stomach. Um, and, and it's like, there's no stopping it, right? Like there's no, like this has just been unfolding continuously. I mean, since before 9-11, but really got kicked into start after 9-11. And like, it's just getting so much worse and worse. And like what we're describing here is, is I mean, to be clear, is insane. Like there's going to be a company or there's going to be whatever company, maybe it's not even going to be Palantir, whatever company replaces Palantir, but there is going to be this apparatus, you know, woven of all these different companies uh, and, and the government that can see your every fucking move and that, that knows where you are 100% of the time. I mean, 60 years ago, it was, it, was, it was contentious whether there should be laws about signing your name in hotel guest books. And now, now it's like you can't even go to the fucking bathroom because, you know, you got the tushy on your toilet seat and they can tell how many times a day you're shit, right? Well, people like, don't care. I mean, I, I'm, well, it's, like, it's insane to yeah, me. I'm I, sorry. It's like insane. It's like the, we had this like conversation like nationally or whatever when the fucking Snowden leaks happened. And it just like like I've, I've had I mean, I know that Greenwald was really good about this. And he had all these things that's like, you know, you say you don't care about privacy. Well, this is why you should care. You know, I mean, I remember all of that shit. But people literally were like, well, what's the big deal? I'm not doing anything wrong. That's what people say. I'm not doing anything wrong. So I don't have to worry. about it. Well, it's it. also because it's like it's so divorced from like, like there's no like 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 the idea of imagining what accountability would even be like is so exactly. difficult to conceive of yeah. in the situation because like these companies yeah. and our pol- political leadership have just foreclosed the possibility straight up of doing any of the things that would actually effectively well, we foreclose it ourselves. I mean, I like you know like this I don't know is- if I totally. I mean, I I don't know if I totally agree with that because I, I, what would you do if we like? How would we act if we didn't foreclose it? What politicians are going to help us out with this? What organizations are dedicated to destroying this? Because this is fucking a part of the fabric of capitalism now. Like this is just like how it is now, and like it's it's not you know. I mean, there there were quite a lot of people, and there you know, there's still a lot of people who you know harp on about privacy and that stuff. But like it's beyond that. This is just how yeah. the system functions now. And, and I and think that like, there's, I mean, there's a real conversation now. Like there there are people who do have like different camps that are trying to present different answers to this exact question. Like probably the most visible one, at least of the last few years. Are they um, anti-monopolists? Exactly. Like the antitrust folks, like Matt Stoller, yeah. Lena Khan, who like, you know, I, I want to make it clear, like I think have some incredibly like really trenchant insights and ideas about how this stuff works and 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 also about the mechanics of how to make it better or or at the very or chop it the fuck up. But like to me, there's, you know, like like what sort of has to really like like the ideas um that have to sort of become like a, like they will only kind of concretize once there is like the political base to make them concrete like as long as like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are sort of like in bed with these companies like kind of tacitly and then uh, if not explicitly already then I don't think that we're going to be able to like even have like a public conversation about what the proper remedies would be because even these camps like the antitrust people who within the context of like you know the Democratic Party are offering like you know in advanced but like liberal technocratic reform like mm. they're getting shut out like and they're trying mm. to find and they're and they're and they're yeah. like best position to like deal with this I mean they have a legal 
legal regime in the toolkit to fuck with these companies right in front of them, and nobody's willing to pick up and use the tools. So well, it that's seems, the thing yeah. is, you know, it as always, political problems have political solutions. Yes, there's no one mm-hmm. weird technocratic fix. You can't game the rules. You can't, you know, fix this one little thing if we just like oh. Let's make a. Let's just in, you know make All this right, one if we, new law. If we turn down the racism dial and turn up the EITC dial, then well, we're going to get. All right, all right, listen. Yeah, no, please I mean, don't give our producer any advice here. It's he knows what he's doing. <laughs> no, no. I mean, <laughs> no, but it's it's true. It's like political problems have political solutions, and and, and you know, Brace. I mean, I understand what what you're saying. It's like, what will we do? What will we do? What will we do? But even that. And saying like we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't do this, in is psychically forecloses, right? Oh, and I've been yeah. thinking a lot about like, I mean, this is getting into other stuff that probably doesn't have to do with this, but you know, it's like I think a lot how we are all creatures of the end of history, whether or not we like it, right? And like we have internalized that ethos to such a degree that, like you rightly point out. Noah, like even the idea of this not being something it, or being a future or this somehow not continuing it is inconceivable, right? And it's at, it's at a point where like, I, I don't know if our listeners have listened to the episode we did with Jason, Jathan Sadowski. I'm not saying that right. I'm sorry, Jathan. Um, but we talked about this on our episode about 5G, right? That like, there is this sense, particularly when we discuss technology and, and science, and particularly when it comes to uh, computer technology and you know tech companies and whatever, that all of this is just unfolding progress, right? That none of this is contestable, that none of this has, yeah. uh, it, that science and technology are not an arena of the political, and like I don't know when that happened or why I have some suspicions on that history but like that attitude toward like these companies towards the development of this technology like has to end and a lot of that you know really comes down to people making interventions in the development of these technologies themselves Right. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's really sort of important to talk about also is that this is part of why it's like, you know, the conversations around like, like, you know, like, like democratic control are super, super important because like you should just like reject the premise straight up that like any of like these fuckers at Facebook or Google, like that they should be allowed to have things that have this kind of power and like, you know, that aren't like democratically controlled fundamentally. I mean, like, let's talk about nationalization. Let's talk about like actual, like the actual instruments of democratic control. Like if we want to get, you know, even that specific, like to me, that's sort of where it's like, if I want to feel optimistic about this stuff and and I think it's fairly easy to do, the line of thought is that it's like, look, like I love Google. I love being able to like find things yeah, but you know, it's like I, I like, like, yeah, I, I too love the internet and the many wonderful things it has given us. I also accept that, like, if I want the internet, if I want those good things to survive in in, in any meaningful way, that they can't be like, like, they can't be allowed to be run by fucking people like either Alex Carp, Peter Thiel, or Mark Zuckerberg. Like, they just can't. I, I think, I think, like my my sort of viewpoint on this, I know you know what to call it, is that like. I mean, you know, I, I'm of course sympathetic to the to the to the nationalization argument, and I think that, like, at the very least, it'll it'll certainly slow down whatever you know these these companies are doing. But but like at a certain point, I think it's just totally connected, just like 
you know, with the system that we live in, and like, and I don't just mean like the American system, but with like the global system, sort of the new world that we live in. And I want like, I, I, I mean, not just like nationalization. I want like annihilation of it. Like it, 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 yeah. it is, it is like the the, the tools that Palantir is producing. Uh, even the tools that Google or any of these companies are really producing that, that, that creates this just like vision into my life. Like I, I, you know, I am a man, like I want to live as a man free, not under like the eye or like the paternalistic fucking hand of these companies. And like, it, it's, I, I don't see like, I mean the, the amount of just sheer power that these companies are gaining, you know, and, and again, it's super national. I mean, Palantir, you know, of course they're very connected. I mean, there's Palantir offices all over the world. They work, they work with companies or they work with governments all over the world. Uh, but like the, 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 like, and specifically about like Google and Amazon and stuff here is like, these companies have so much like extra or supernational power that like, it, it, they almost fu- it's like a it's like a new force in the world right like they should get a fucking seat at the UN I mean Christ they basically own a, several yeah. of the seats at the UN and like it, it, it you know I, I, I don't like uh, what, what what I think the way I think of it is like I I don't think that the Stoller approach I mean those guys are very those guys are very good at diagnosing you know what is wrong with a lot of these companies but their prescriptions are dog shit because what the what these companies are fucking criminal and what you should yeah. you do to, you know to 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 certain kinds of criminals is what you should fucking string them up and like you know I, again allegedly there's not I don't mean that literally um but uh but like. It, 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 it's it, the, the things that they're doing are should not be allowed. And there's nobody that uh, that government wise that would stop them because it's not in the government's interest to stop them in a lot of cases. It, it, you know, especially, you know, with Palantir specifically, the government would love to have these tools available to them. There is absolutely no reason for Schumer or for Pelosi to ever turn their back on Amazon or Google or any of these companies. And if they did, I'm sure those companies would just shove a few more billion dollars or like in the case of, I mean, look what happened in, in, in Seattle when, 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 when Kashama Sawant you know, propose that tax is, 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 is Amazon practically funded the entire political apparatus after that. It, it's absurd. And so like, uh, you, you know, I, I think my solution is just like the same solution that morons like me have been talking about for a long time, which is just, it's total war. But the problem is, is people aren't, they, they don't see the, the need for that. Because they either see that it's like a this is like a discrete problem, like the sort of technocratic view of it, or they think that like this is just the natural world now, and this is like it's like declaring war against you know trees or something like that, like no, it, or like tree, you know, it's just something that exists in nature. But what it, what it actually is is a weed, and you know you you can rip it out, um, but you know it it it, it takes something, it takes a, a large effort. I mean, and this is, I mean, I think that like then the only rational response left when, you know, confronted with this is uh, it's really just rugs and sort of, you know, like I wouldn't say hedonism per se, but trying to yeah. find some sort of uh, inward kind of like, just like, I mean, like half jokingly, but I mean that like, it's part of why I do feel like there is some sort of like spiritual turn or something just because it's like, like people can't be trapped in the matrix for this long. Like, you know, yeah. it's, it's just like, it's not like, I don't want to say that it's not sustainable because it quite obviously has sustained for some time now but it's like it's you know like every everybody's uncomfortable it's i feel like like you know that's like at least one thing that like everyone shares these days yeah this nobody likes this no no that's the crazy thing nobody fucking likes this 
And 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 yet, not only are we are we are we engaged in it, you know, just massively, but it's like a it's like an intrinsic part of our lives now. Oh no, it's, we just it's, it's, it's yeah. incredible. Yeah, I wonder about that. Did you remember? Did you guys see that TikTok with that girl who was like, "I thought San Francisco future was going to be like," and it was like mm-hmm. a, it, you know, it had like like space cars and like yeah, yeah, crazy yeah. like Singapore, and then it was like what it really is, and it was like you know. The McDonald's on like bedroom apartments, <laughs> like yeah, literally yeah, yeah. just what San Francisco looks like, and yeah, it was McDonald's just like now. oh really? Who the oh. F- yeah, but I was just like watching that, and I'm just like, oh my god, the Zoomers are not going to save us. Whoever says that no. is like such bullshit. That was, I mean, I feel like this is like a good way to close the loop because it's like that was you know Peter Thiel and like his founders fund. Like the line that he's most like that he gets credited with a lot with is that like you know we were promised flying cars and mm, instead yeah. we yes. have like I don't know like like YouTube or whatever and and I think that like that sort of like it, it's a ch- like, at its core it's like a childish fantasy like mm-hmm. it's like we can't instead what it feels like in practice is that like we can't have flying cars so instead I'm going to like we're going to have Big Brother like we're going to yeah, like have yeah. as like we're going to sublimate our inability to conjure any of these things that we fantasized about and we don't have a politic you know we don't, we, we don't actually have like a like a like a positive vision of how civil society could ever be or ever you know we, we don't believe that like humans can have good things because we're like natural like hobbesian psychos and so thus we're instead just going to build the palantir because fuck you and that really yeah. is it like it is just because fuck you isn't it, it's so funny to me that's like the the like deep irony of the libertarian like ethos is that it always ends up like back in the arms of big of big government. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Like a hundred percent. And it because it's it's individual desire. I mean this is the you know, this is the the contradiction inherent to well libertarianism but also liberalism is that it's individual desires and the extreme uh you know like you say, the like extreme uh, routes that it wants to go to fulfill these individual desires, whatever they are, can only happen with the security of a big fucking large system behind it, right? Yeah, and and there's, I mean, it's it's part of why I mean libertarians are just like the most cucked people alive because like <laughs> they they're they like will so insanely bleat about this kind of freedom and freak out about all this stuff when in reality, obviously all of it is like only possible and mediated by like, you know, this like, like giant, like daddy law and order figure that like, they're constantly like, like fucking and sucking. Like that's, that's their Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just one big insurance company. Yes. <laughs> I guess like to our listeners out there, one thing I want to impart is that you have so many enemies. You have so many mm. enemies and you really have to start treating them like enemies. I mean, this stuff can really be overwhelming, but like, I mean, they 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 fucking hate you, and you should fucking hate them too. Yeah, they yeah. and they, and they and look, they're gonna be like. I mean, obviously, like the most like simple minded version of it is like Uber being like, if you're racist, don't ride Uber. Like you know, yeah. like that's like you know, obviously phony and bullshit and everything. But like all of like the subtle stuff that like they're gonna you know like because like Palantir is already trying to position it like they're your friend because they don't steal your data, and that's obvious. It's another yeah. pretty like nakedly disingenuous one. But like you know, as as like as like the you know fabric of civil society just comes further and further unraveled, like they're gonna try even harder to be your friends, and it's like it's just like the obligation of every ethical thinking person everywhere to scream "fuck you" back as loudly as you can. 
Well, a big talking point now, I mean, especially related to the Uber stuff, is people like be like, well, capitalism needs racism or whatever. I'm like, brother, you don't know what fucking capitalism needs. Like, capitalism <laughs> needs one fucking thing. It's exploitation. And they will get that through whatever means available. And so, like, it's it's it can adapt. It can move. It can do anything. And so people kind of create these mental laws in their head of like, well, if it's doing this, you know, it's like, it's but, like but no. Brother, it is your, they, they are your enemies. They hate you. They want you fucking, you know, they call it Wade slavery for a reason, brother. Like it is, it is. Yeah, it's. And uh, that's right. And who was the original enforcer of all wage slavery? That's it. The Jews. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I would like to announce that uh, Noah and I have started the, uh, the Christ fund. We are regaining Christ's uh, sort of message as a Jew, his pre-Christian message. It's uh, atoning for years of, uh, you know, just years of being Jewish. Yeah, uh, we're uh, our bad. Yeah, like, this is actually our Yom Kippur, like, atonement, <laughs> uh, like, perspective was to become Christian. Exactly. Well, um, Noah, thank you. Please. <laughs> this episode went a little off the rails. I, I gotta, love doing this. This is yeah, great. Yeah, this is fun. But I got to say, like, uh, we actually have a lot to say about the man, the myth, the legend, Peter Thiel. So we're going to have to have mm. Noah back to do part two of this because Twink Peter talk. Thiel. Peter Thiel. <laughs> There's just too much to get into, and and he's just a really fascinating figure, and we've kind of talked uh, about him um, in the past, and I feel like we owe our listeners a little Teal episode, so we got that coming. All right. Thanks for having me. Uh, you can check out Noah's podcast, Blowback, on base- and every podcast platform now. It's been, it's been all made available, right? Yep, 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 and uh, yeah, please listen. And it is, yeah, fantastic. Uh, it is, it is. Uh, if you liked our nine eleven episodes, you'll love the blowback. Um, yeah. Oh fuck, I have a really good joke, but I can't make it. I'll make it. Dude, I'll make, make it, it after we go off the air. Okay. And our teal episode will be named Bearback. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, um, in, I just remembered something that I forgot to mention when we were talking, which mm-hmm. is, remember when I said I want to put a pin in this Colorado thing? Yeah. Okay. So, to my fellow tinfoil hatters out there, uh-huh. first of all, I see you. I hear you. You're always valid. Uh-huh. And reflective. And I want to say that all, I've put my tinfoil hat on, and I think that it's not just about Denver being cheaper than Silicon Valley, which is the obvious explanation for Palantir leaving Silicon Valley mm. for Denver, but that, you know, there's a big secret military complex in the mountains of Cheyenne. This thing is massive, NORAD, NORTHCOM, and mm. other Pentagon operations are headquartered there. Featured in the movie War Games. <laughs> But uh, no, but seriously, I actually think that that is maybe one of the reasons. And the military has a massive presence in the state of Colorado. Also, there's the secret tunnels under the Denver airport. Mm -hmm. The mole children. Yes, mole children. There's the scary Bronco with the laser eyes Uh and the like Hitler murals. I also once played a show in front of like 30 juggalos in Denver, Colorado. 
Hmm. How did it go? Time. I did not oh. enjoy myself. Not hmm. a big uh, places guy. Like, whenever I go somewhere, I'm always like, this ain't, you know, what am I, why am I here? That's funny, because you're always complaining about where you're at. I know, but then I'll, well, it's like, I like some places, but then, like, this was like a long tour, and so I was just in Denver, I'm like... What are, what are they, what mining or whatever do they need to do here? Like, what, what is what's Denver? Going on? Why is there a Denver? And I know a bunch of Denvorians are going to email us. Be like, Actually, Denver is a really good craft brew scene. Or like, uh, you know what? Like most girls in Denver's are fucking tens, bro. But you know what? I walk the streets of Denver. They were empty. They were silent. I found nothing. I was chilly despite it being early fall. And, and I'll tell you what. I saw them Snow Peak Mountains there and I remembered the brutal massacres of miners there in the early 20th century. And I saw their ghosts flying through the sky and they told me, uh, you guys don't have to spend the night here. You guys can just keep driving to the other town. It's fine. Like just, just spend the night in, I can't remember where we went next, but that's what the ghost told me. Yeah. I'm good on Denver. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, you know what? I'm not a Boulder guy either. Never been there, but I'm not liking what I'm hearing. I've never been to Boulder. Uh-huh. I have I did invent the the rock climbing technique of bouldering. Mm, um, sure. which is just yeah, it's where you climb a boulder. And you love to play boulder dash. I do love to play boulder dash and I also like to wear boulder hats and uh, boulder I, ties. Mhm. Uh-huh. And I like to be bolder than most guys are when I tell my co-host she's being very witty. <laughs> no man will tell that to Liz. Men aren't terrified of Liz ever except for me. <laughs> not are they are you kidding me in in the in the, so i'm in a slack with like something like 65 75 of the guys on earth oh my god and in our liz channel it's all just guys being like dude i don't think i can do this like i, I tried to send her an email my computer blew up it's <laughs> it's i did give them your email address if that's cool all right all right all right uh thank you guys i'm liz oh wait are you talking to me and young chomsky when you said thank you guys yeah you're welcome I'm Brace. Yep. <laughs> Thank you to our listeners. Uh, and, and Young Chomsky uh, is our producer and also is very grateful for Liz's, Liz's thank you. And uh, we're the podcast True Anon. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.